This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Before we begin today, a short housekeeping note. Occasionally, we'll be interrupted by the sound of an old-fashioned school bell. To signal a sidebar, a look at a special topic. So, remember, signals a special topic. For the past several episodes, we've been exploring the tapestry of American stories through the lens of sports, Americans in their games, sports in American history and culture. Americans obsess over sports, but they rarely stop to take them seriously. They, they rarely examine sports as a cultural phenomenon, revealing a society's values and beliefs. We've been doing that by asking, are sports America's new religion? What light does sports shine on the experience of Native Americans, the indigenous people? What can we learn from sports about the African-American experience? How is women's quest for rights revealed by, first, their exclusion from almost all sporting activity, and then, the post-Title IX explosion of women's sporting participation? Last month, we sorted through part one of Sports in the Immigrants' Quest for Inclusion, examining examining through the lens of the great Irish and German mid-19th century immigration to America, and the sons and grandsons of those immigrants, examining their domination of American sports in the 19th and early 20th century. Today, Today, we'll pick up the thread of that story's plotline in the early 20th century after the second great wave of immigration crested, crested between 1890 and the onset of World War I, and just before and just after the passage of the Immigration Act of 1924, a piece of legislation which sought to curtail immigration from Southern Europe, primarily Italy and Greece, and sought to curtail immigration from Eastern Europe, essentially all Slavic peoples and Russian Jews. Along the way, we'll learn about the triumph of Jewish boxers. We'll learn about Eastern European immigrants who triumphed in baseball and football. We'll learn how the Immigration Act of 1924 slammed the door shut on those Eastern Europeans. And we'll learn how the Immigration Act of 1965 once again opened the door to another immigrant-driven era of American transformation. That's today on the American Tapestry Project. Part 2 of Sports and the Immigrants' Quest for Inclusion. Last month, we learned that the enduring support of the New York Yankees by Italian-American fans resulted from the impact of, first, Joe DiMaggio, and then, later in the 1950s, Yogi Berra and Phil Rizzuto. We also learned that the first Italian-American professional baseball player was Western Pennsylvania's own Ed Abitiscio. Picking up that thread today, we'll meet several of the sons of German and Eastern European immigrants who found sports their portal into American society. 
The great German ballplayers of that era included Hannes Wagner, Addie Joss, and Babe Ruth, Hall of Famers all. Among those first German ballplayers, however, were many more merely mortal individuals whose experience highlighted sports as a door into American society. Among them were Germany Schaefer, whose contribution might be bested by Chris von der Ehr, who owned the St. Louis Browns. As Germany Schaefer's biography at the Society for American Baseball Research notes, he was always willing to entertain the crowd. A better-than-average player, he gained his greatest notoriety for stealing first base. Schaefer was born to German immigrant parents in 1876 on Chicago's South Side, born in a neighborhood infamous for vice, prostitution, and gang violence. Although he was Irish, it was a world James T. Farrell, Studs Lonigan knew well. Schaefer might not have been a great ball player, but he was a very good player. He was a key member of the great Detroit Tiger teams of the 1900s and one of the few to befriend Ty Cobb. However, Schaefer was better known for some of his stunts. In 1906, in a game against the Chicago White Sox, he strode to home plate boldly proclaiming he was the greatest pinch hitter of all time and announcing he would hit the first pitch he saw into the left-field bleachers. He promptly did. After sliding into every base as he rounded them heading for home, he hooked slide into home plate, bounced up, and told the crowd that that ended. That ended today's performance. He is legendary for, on at least one occurrence, stealing first base. In an August 1911 game, Schaefer stole second base, hoping to draw a throw so that teammate Clyde Milan and third base could steal home. But the catcher didn't bite and didn't throw to second. So, Schaefer let off second base on the first base side and then promptly stole back to first base to try to set up the play again. An argument ensued. Schaefer was called out and the inning ended. Germany Schaefer, the only man ever to steal first base. Before all of this foolishness, there was Chris von der Ehr. A German immigrant who owned the St. Louis Browns in the 1880s, von der Ehr was one of the few owners of that era to actually make a profit from his ball club. He did it by charging lower ticket prices so working men could attend, and he played games on Sunday, an American no-no at the time, and, more importantly for posterity, he instituted beer concessions at the ballpark. So, a German entrepreneurial immigrant created two American traditions, sports on Sunday and beer sales at the ballpark. The next time you're at any sporting event, give a tip of the cap to German immigrant Chris von der Ehr. There have been many Jewish Major League Baseball players, beginning with, beginning with Lip Pike. According to the Jewish Virtual Library entry on Jews in Major League Baseball, Pike was one of the premier players of his day. He began playing with the Philadelphia Athletics in 1866. He combined speed with power, once hitting six home runs in a single game. The final score was 67-25. to 25. Baseball was a different game then. In 1936, in the first-ever Baseball Hall of Fame balloting, Lip Pike, Lip Pike got one vote. Beginning with Mo Berg in the 1930s, Berg of the catcher was a spy fame. Just before and during World War II, Berg led a second life as an agent for the CIA's predecessor, the OSS, 
the Office of Strategic Services. In any event, beginning with Berg, there were numerous great Jewish ballplayers like Lou Boudreau and Al Rosen of the Cleveland Indians, Sandy Koufax, arguably the greatest, certainly one of the greatest pitchers of all time, and Ron Blomberg, the first-ever designated hitter in baseball on April 6, 1973, when he appeared for the New York Yankees. And, even today, other fine ballplayers like current major leaguers Ryan Brown, Alex Bregman, Ian Kinsler, and Jock Pedersen. Maybe, however, the greatest Jewish ballplayer was Hank Greenberg, who played for the Detroit Tigers from 1933 to 1947. A great player, In 1938, he hit 58 home runs, challenging Babe Ruth's then-record 60 for a single season. Greenberg's military career, however, sets him apart. Drafted in May 1940, he entered the Army, but when Congress said men over 28 were exempt, he was honorably discharged. He returned to the Tigers, but when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, Greenberg was the first major leaguer to enlist in the Army. He could have had a cushy job training soldiers in the States, but he chose to serve in the Army Air Corps and the China-Burma-India Theater. When the war ended, he returned to the Tigers in 1945 and hit a home run in his first game back. That year, 1945, he led the Tigers to a World Series victory. After he retired as a ball player, he became Major League Baseball's first Jewish owner general manager with the Cleveland Indians and later with the Chicago White Sox. After baseball, he had a successful career on Wall Street. In 1954, he was the first Jewish player to be voted into the Hall of Fame. That's all interesting, but sports as a portal into American society and America as a refuge from the world's ills is highlighted by an interesting photograph of Greenberg standing with Lou Gehrig, both holding the bats that made them famous. Just two ball players talking ball. But... Both were the sons of immigrants, Greenberg of Romanian Orthodox Jewish parents, Gehrig of German immigrants. Had their parents remained in Europe, I think of the difference that would have resulted as both tried to navigate the challenges of World War II. It's actually not that pleasant to think about. The primary avenue into American sporting culture for Jewish immigrants and their sons was boxing. Hard as it might be for people in 2023 to grasp, boxing was a very big deal in American sporting culture in the early 20th century. You'll recall from the episode about Jack Johnson that it was a Jewish fighter named Joe Choinsky who taught Johnson how to box. Boxing, like show business in the music industry, in the early 20th century, attracted Jewish artists and athletes because they were two of the few arenas in American life where Jews did not encounter discrimination. Early American popular music, Tin Pan Alley, was dominated by young Jewish artists. Think Irving Berlin. Berlin himself wrote practically 80% of all of the great hits of the first part of the 20th century. In fact, I think sometime uh, in the next year we're going to do an entire episode on Irving Berlin and Tin Pan Alley. Boxing did the same thing that music and art did. It provided an entree into American culture for Jewish immigrants and their sons. And in the early 20th century, until just after World War II, there were a number of great Jewish boxers like Slapsy Maxie Rosenblum, Sam Berger, and Barney Ross. But the greatest 
were Benny Leonard and Max Baer. Who were Benny Leonard and Max Baer? Benny Leonard was one of the cleverest defensive boxers in the history of professional boxing. He was noted for distracting his opponents by talking to them. ESPN ranked him 7th in its rankings of the 50 greatest boxers of all time. Raised amidst the tenements of Manhattan's Lower East Side, Leonard was the son of Russian-Jewish immigrants. Although he lost his first professional bout, Leonard dominated the lightweight ranks during the 19-teens. He won the lightweight championship in 1917 and then beat featherweight champion Johnny Kilbane in July 1917. Leonard fought numerous bouts during the next five to seven years, winning almost all of them. He finally retired in 1932. After leaving boxing, with his good looks and the crowd his fame attracted, he performed in vaudeville, making several appearances as a dancer and performer. He appeared in the vaudeville musical Battling Butler in 1927. During his boxing career, Leonard starred in the silent film serial The Evil Eye and a series of boxing-related film shorts titled Flying Fist. He also appeared in 1925's The Comeback and Hitting Hard. Unfortunately, Leonard lost the vast majority of his fortune in the stock market crash of 1929. He then taught boxing at City College of New York and served in the maritime service during World War II. Benny Leonard, Benny Leonard died in 1947. Max Baer, well, Max Baer is rated number 22 in Ring Magazine's listing of the 100 greatest punchers of all time. Baer is the grandson of German-Jewish immigrants Ashel Baer and Fanny Fischel on his father's side, and Scots-Irish immigrants on his mother's side. Born in 1909 in Nebraska, Bear was raised in ranching country in northern California, where as a teenager and young man, he worked on the cattle ranches and in slaughterhouses. Later in life, Bear said toting heavy carcasses of meat, stunning cattle with one blow of a sledgehammer, and working at a gravel pit developed his powerful shoulders. Bear started boxing professionally in 1929, but he almost gave it up a year later when he killed Frankie Campbell in a match in San Francisco. The tragedy earned Bear the nickname Killer. Bear was charged with manslaughter in the Campbell incident, but was acquitted. Campbell's wife forgave him, saying, It could have been you. Bear gave Campbell's widow the money he won from five subsequent bouts. After a suspension by the California Boxing Commission... Bear returned to the ring under the tutelage of former heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey. Dempsey said of Bear, Bear's only 24 years old, but he's the biggest, strongest man fighting today, and he hits with terrible power. Bear's comeback was guaranteed when he defeated German heavyweight and Adolf Hitler favorite Max Schmeling in 1933. Bear became a hero among Jews and those who despised the Nazis. Film legend Greta Garbo thought Bear's victory over Schmeling a mini-victory against Nazism. She invited him to Hollywood to visit her. They became lovers, an affair that lasted until Bear had to return to New York to train for future fights. In June 1934, Bear defeated Primo Carnera for the world heavyweight title. Bear became cocky and lost his next bout to James J. Braddock in one of the great upsets in boxing history. The recent movie Cinderella Man is based on that fight. Bear, however, had a second act. He was an extremely good-looking guy. So, after he retired from boxing, he became a movie star. 
Not a megastar, but successful enough that it carried him through the rest of his life. Bear starred with Gene Howard in The Prize Fighter and The Lady, and almost 20 other films like Africa Screams with Abbott and Costello and The Harder They Fall with Humphrey Bogart. He also appeared in vaudeville and early TV variety shows and comedies. His son, Max Bear Jr., starred in the 1960s TV comedy classic The Beverly Hillbillies. Max Bear died of a heart attack in 1959. In addition to German and Jewish athletes making their way into American society via sports, during the 19-teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s, numerous sons of Eastern European immigrants made the same journey. Athletes like Joe Medwick, sometimes called Ducky. The son of Hungarian immigrants, Medwick starred with the legendary St. Louis Cardinals Gas House Gang of the 1930s. Or Al Simmons, the son of Polish immigrants who changed his name from Szymanski to Simmons because it was easier to pronounce. Born Aloysius Harry Szymanski, Simmons starred for Connie Mack's great Philadelphia athletic teams of the 1920s. Some of those Eastern European immigrant sons became legends, like Bronco Nagurski. His parents, Mike and Michalina Nagurski, were immigrants from the Galicia region of Eastern Europe. Raised in International Falls, Minnesota, Nagurski first found fame playing for the University of Minnesota football team. Later, later he played for the Chicago Bears from 1930 to 1937. Those were the days when the Bears were known as the Monsters of the Midway. A running back and defensive lineman, Nagurski was one of the great two-way players in NFL history. He was a member of the first group voted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1963. George Hallis, son of Austro-Hungarian immigrants Barbara and Frank Hallis, was the owner and head coach of those same Chicago Bears. He was better known as Papa Bear. He was a great player in his own right and also played Major League Baseball for the New York Yankees. Hallis was one of the founders of the National Football League at the famous meeting in Ralph Hayes' Hupmobile dealership in Canton, Ohio. As a result, to this day, the Chicago Bears wear a GSH patch on their uniform honoring their founder. My favorite George Hallis anecdote comes from Dick Butkus. Hallis, Having survived close calls with bankruptcy in the NFL's infancy was, well, Hallis was known to be able to pinch a penny. After being turned down for a raise in those pre-agent days, Butkus said of Hallis that he threw nickels around like manhole covers. As many of you weavers know from previous episodes, I'm a lifelong Cleveland Guardians knee Cleveland Indians fan. And one of my favorites from the Cleveland Indians era is Stan Kowaleski. Now, I never saw him play. I was born 30 years too late for that. But as Daniel Levitt says in Kowaleski's profile at the Society for American Baseball Research, with one of the finest spitballs in baseball history, Stan Kowaleski baffled American League hitters from the final years of the dead ball era into the 1920s. To keep hitters off balance, Kowaleski went to his mouth before every pitch. I wouldn't throw all split balls, he later explained. I'd go maybe two or three innings without throwing a spitter, but I always had them looking for it. Born Stanislaus Anthony Kowaleski, 
to a family of Polish descent in 1889 in the coal mining town of Shamokin, Pennsylvania. Covey, later recalled working in the local mines by the time he was 12 years old, from 7 in the morning to 7 at night, 6 days a week for $3.75 a week. All of his brothers were ball players, and they taught young Stan the game. Kowaleski joined the Cleveland Indians in 1916. His brother Harry pitched for the Detroit Tigers. In the next four years, Kowaleski won 80 games for the Tribe. Cleveland's 1920 season was marred by tragedy and triumph. In May, Kowaleski's wife Mary died. In August, shortstop Ray Chapman was killed by a pitch. He is the only player ever to die in a Major League Baseball game. Grieving those two losses, the Tribe rallied to defeat the Brooklyn Robins, as the Dodgers were then known, five games to three in the World Series, the first of only two that they ever won. As Levitt details, Kowaleski was a big reason for the Tribe's success, winning 24 games, finishing second in the league with a 2.49 ERA, and leading the league with 133 strikeouts. His best work he saved for that year's Best of Nine World Series, pitching three complete game victories, including a shutout in the series-clinching Game 7. After a long wait, he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1969. Joe Medwick, Al Simmons, Bronco Nagurski, George Hallis, and Stan Kowaleski. Great ballplayers and athletes all, they gave the lie to the anti-immigrant fervor roiling American society in the 19-teens and 1920s. As we heard last month, 1882's Chinese Exclusion Act and the Immigration Act of 1917 started the legal assault on immigration. But the first and most effective law to substantially reduce immigration was the Immigration Act of 1924. It's a major piece of culture-shaping legislative history. What inspired it? Well, a little background is necessary. While there was lingering anti-Catholic and anti-Irish hostility from pre-Civil War America, despite their sons' and grandsons' success as athletes, the main inspiration was an intense, negative, sometimes vicious nativist reaction to immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was just another variation on the theme of labor. 19th century America's burgeoning industrial expansion needed workers. Solution? Bring in desperate people fleeing oppression and poverty who were willing to work in deep mines like Stanley Kowaleski's father to tend blast furnaces and do the other dirty jobs an industrial economy demanded. As a result, although until 1900 most immigrants were still from Northern Europe, from 1890 until 1920, but particularly between 1900 and 1910, there was a massive surge in immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. Italians, Poles, Greeks, and others from Russia and the Balkans came to America in search of a better life. American nativists feared the loss of their cultural identity. Defining white people as only those of Nordic stock, nativists were terrified America would cease to be white and English because of people Henry Cabot Lodge called the mongrel scum of Southern and Eastern Europe. 
lodge vilified Italians, Greeks, and Russians, and all Slavic people. On the West Coast, increased Asian, primarily Japanese, increased Asian immigration stoked similar fears. How did the anti-immigration adherents propose to fight off this foreign threat? And who were they? The Anti-Immigration League and Eugenics. Who and what were the Anti-Immigration League and what was eugenics? Well, who they were might surprise you. Like their predecessor know-nothings, they came from the most powerful, the most prominent leadership class. Yes, they had rabble they could rouse, but primarily they depended upon a cultural, economic, and politically elite network of colleagues and friends. They came from America's Brahmin elite, literally. They were the descendants of the earliest colonial immigrants. They feared immigration's rising tide was washing away their cultural identity, their cherished sense of themselves as defenders of Nordic superiority. Their chief evangelists were U.S. Senator Henry Cabot Lodge and Prescott Hall, both as patrician as once upon a time, I suspect it still is, both as patrician as it's possible to be. In the late 19th century, Lodge began fulminating against the mongrel scum invading our shores as he vigorously sought to require a literacy test to enter the country. He thought that if they could read, at least read their native language, these new immigrants might be less scummy. Prescott Farnsworth Hall, don't you love that middle name? It squeaks of snobbery. Prescott Farnsworth Hall advocated xenophobia and eugenics. He was the driving force and the first leader of the Immigration Restriction League, America's first anti-immigrant think tank, also a member of the American Society for Psychical Research and the American Genetic Association, Hall advocated scientific racism in eugenics. He successfully lobbied for the Immigration Act of 1917, the first law restricting immigration. After many defeats and vetoes, since first proposed by Lodge, Hall got a literacy test included. The law also taxed every immigrant in inflation-adjusted $162 and barred almost all Asians. But Hall and, to a lesser extent, Lodge, earned their ignominious place in American history for their support of eugenics, a bogus discipline that gave respectability to racism with a veneer of science. These defenders of Nordic, mostly English, superiority defined race differently than we do today. They defined it as nationality. In their scheme, English was a race, French was a race, etc. Thus, the guardians at the gate were members of the English race, but since that excluded highly desirable North Europeans, they expanded the concept to include all those they called Nordic, essentially the British and Scandinavians. Germans posed an interesting problem, since, as Central Europeans, it could be argued they weren't Nordics, which would have surprised the Prussians. The apostles of eugenics classified them as Alpines, a bogus category. The rules of inclusion were malleable, but excluded all Southern and Eastern Europeans, which created a problem, since they were descendants of the Romans, what to do about the loathed Italians with their garlicky sausages and tomato sauce? Simple. Just deny their connection to the Romans. The modern Italians, the eugenicists argued, were not descended from the Romans. They were a bastard race, a degenerate Roman residue. 
What is eugenics? Who were the eugenicists? Eugenics aimed to improve the genetic quality of a human population by excluding people in groups judged to be inferior or promoting those judged to be superior. Dog and cattle breeding applied to humans. The concept is ancient. Plato advocated the selective breeding of humans around 400 BC. In the 19th century, it was understood as a way of improving groups of people. First promoted by Francis Galton, Charles Darwin's cousin, it attempted to use the principles of evolution to breed for desirable social characteristics. Darwin opposed this as scientifically invalid because it mistook a secondary or tertiary characteristic for a genetic effect which might be true for the individual but not the group. In America, the chief exponent was Charles Davenport, a professor of zoology at Harvard and the founder of the eugenics laboratory at Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island. In the early 20th century, responding to the influx of immigrants, Davenport's shaky science was seized upon by people from across the political spectrum espousing eugenic ideas to improve the quality of America's to improve the quality of America's genetic stock. They used both positive methods, such as encouraging fit individuals to reproduce, and negative methods, such as forced sterilization of people considered unfit to reproduce. One of their so-called positive attempts was to breed better, more English, more Nordic babies. So, they sponsored contests promoting better babies, such as Oregon's Perfect Baby Girl Contest, which banned African-American and immigrant children from entering. On the negative side, they endorsed banning immigrants from inferior races, such as Italians, Poles, Greeks, Hungarians, and Russians. Remember, they equated race with nationality. Their influence peaked during and just after World War I in the work of Madison Grant, another Brahmin and president of the Museum of Natural History in New York City, Grant, whose The Passing of the Great Race lamented the decline of Northern Europeans, and also Lothrop Stoddard, whose The Rising Tide of Color bewailed the swamping of Nordic culture by swarthy Greeks, wheedling Jews, Italians, and other undesirables. The eugenics movement became associated with Nazi Germany and the Holocaust when, Many defendants at the Nuremberg trials justified their human rights abuses by claiming there was little difference between the Nazis and the American eugenics programs. Today, the term eugenics suggests scientific racism and white supremacy. Its most consequential impact was in completely changing the trajectory of American immigration through the Immigration Act of 1924. The Immigration Act of 1924 prevented immigration from Asia, set quotas on the number of immigrants from the Eastern Hemisphere, and provided both funding and enforcement mechanisms to enforce banning immigrants. What were the Immigration Act of 1924's key provisions, which radically reduced immigration until the Immigration Act of 1965 inadvertently reopened the door? Well, those provisions included, first, limiting immigration to 165,000 for countries outside the Western Hemisphere and barring immigrants entirely from Asia. Second, and of major consequence, creating nationality quotas and setting them at 2% of foreign-born members of that nationality residing in the United States in 1890. 
Why 1890 and not 1900 or 1910 or 1920? Because nationalities with small numbers in 1890 were prevented from immigrating in large numbers. The quotas particularly hammered Italians, Greeks, and Eastern European Jews, as well as Poles and other Slavs. Third, the Act gave 85% of the quota to Northern and Western Europe and those who had an education or trade. Fourth, it established the Counselor Service of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Fifth, it created the visa requirement. And sixth, it established the Border Patrol primarily to guard the Mexican-United States border. What were its results? Prescott Hall must have been thrilled. It reduced immigration from 357,000 in 1923-24 to 165,000, or less than half, in 1924-25. Immigration from Italy fell 90%. In fact, the provisions of the Act were so restrictive that in 1924, more Italians, Czechs, Yugoslavs, Greeks, Lithuanians, Hungarians, Poles, Portuguese, Romanians, Spaniards, Chinese, and Japanese left the United States than arrived as immigrants. Because Eastern European immigration did not become substantial until the late 19th century, the law's use of the population of the United States in 1890 as the basis for calculating quotas, well, that strangled migration from Eastern Europe where the vast majority of the Jewish diaspora lived at the time. Unintentionally, it made escaping the Holocaust virtually impossible. Despite the racist rants of anti-immigrant bigots, Numerous sons of immigrants continued to use sports as an avenue into American society. Who are Don Shula, Stan Musial, and Lou Groza? Son of Hungarian immigrants, Don Shula won more games, 347, than any other coach in NFL history. Raised in Painesville, Ohio, Shula starred in basketball and football at Cleveland's John Carroll University. Shula played for the Cleveland Browns and the Baltimore Colts. He began coaching professionally with the Detroit Lions and then the Baltimore Colts and Miami Dolphins. His Colts lost the 1964 title game to the Cleveland Browns. Shula's 1972 Miami Dolphins became the first and only NFL team to go undefeated during the regular season and to win the Super Bowl, completing a perfect undefeated regular and playoff season. Shula entered the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1997. Stan Musial. Stan the Man, as he was nicknamed, spent 22 seasons playing for the St. Louis Cardinals and was a first ballot inductee into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1969. A lifetime 300 hitter, he hit 331 for his career, holds the record for most hits in the National League at 3,630, the record for runs batted in at 1,951 and several more. Born in Denora, Pennsylvania, Musial's mother was of Carpatho-Rusin descent and his father was a Polish immigrant who always referred to his son by the Polish nickname Stashu. Musial was a phenomenal schoolboy athlete in both baseball and basketball. He signed his first professional baseball contract while in high school. 
He made his major league debut in 1941. Like many, his baseball career was interrupted by World War II, but returning to baseball in 1946, he won a second Most Valuable Player Award after batting 365 as the Cardinals captured their third World Series championship in five years. Musial had his greatest season statistically in 1948 when he posted career high and league leading totals in batting average 376, hits 230, runs 135, runs batted in 131, which resulted in a third National League Most Valuable Player Award. The Cardinals were mediocre during the 1950s, but Musial excelled. At the time of his retirement, he held numerous records. His career as a player ended, he became an executive of the Cardinals, which included a one-year stint as the team's general manager, the year being 1967, when the Cardinals were, once again, World Series champions. He was named a National League All-Star in 20 of his 22 seasons and was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1969. In 2011, Musial was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Lou Groza Possessor of one of the great nicknames in sports history, Lou, the Toe Groza, starred for the Cleveland Browns back in the days when the Browns were actually good. Born to immigrant parents from Transylvania, the Toe was one of four boys in a very athletic family. The Toe himself was no slouch lettering in football, basketball, and baseball for Martins Ferry High School. A first-team All-State selection, Groza then attended Ohio State where he played for legendary coach Paul Brown. Stationed in Okinawa during the war, Groza received an offer from Paul Brown to play for Cleveland upon his return. It began a career that saw Lou the Toe Groza play tackle on the offensive line and become a legend as a place kicker. Groza kicked straight ahead using a square-toed boot long before the modern soccer-style kickers appeared. As Ben Donahue says at the website Browns Nation, Groza played an astounding 21 seasons for the Browns, including a whopping 268 games. The Browns dominated the NFL in the 1950s, but after a back injury, Groza retired in 1959. Coaxed by Browns ne'er-do-well owner Art Modell, Groza returned in 1961. By the time the Browns returned to the NFL title game in 1964, they were considered underdogs against the heavily favored Baltimore Colts. You'll remember Don Shula was their coach. Groza scored the first points of the game on a 43-yard field goal as the Browns shut out Shula's Colts 27 to nothing. Groza scored one-third of the points, nine on two field goals and three extra points. Groza, Lou the Toe, was chosen as a member of the NFL's 1950s All-Decay team as well as the 50th anniversary All-Time team. A humble guy, Groza showed his football roots when he said he just happened to be good at kicking, but he always considered himself a tackle. All of that ethnic success notwithstanding, with Hall, Lodge, and other xenophobes triumphant, under the three-part pressure of the nationality quota system, the Great Depression of the 1930s, and World War II during the 1940s, immigration fell to a trickle. But then, the 1960s happened. In the 1960s, faced by both domestic civil rights challenges and internationally newly freed colonial nations looking for American leadership on liberty and freedom, 
the United States faced intense pressure to change the discriminatory nation-based formula. President Truman's 1952 Commission on Immigration and Naturalization conducted an investigation and produced a report on immigration's regulations. The report, Whom Shall We Welcome?, served as the blueprint for 1965's Hart Seller Act. In the late 50s and the 1960s, at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, the restrictive immigration laws were a national embarrassment. Michigan Senator Philip Hart and Brooklyn's Representative Manny Seller sponsored the bill. Seller had opposed the 1924 Act and worked for the next 40 years to get rid of the nationality quota system. On Liberty Island in New York Harbor, before the Statue of Liberty, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the 1965 Act, which ended preferences for white immigrants that reached back to 1790's Naturalization Act, limiting citizenship to free white persons of good character. What were 1965's Immigration and Nationality Act's key provisions? First, it abolished the national origins quota. This meant that it eliminated national origin, race, and ancestry as basis for immigration. Two, it created a seven-category preference system which gave priority to relatives of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents and to professionals and other individuals with specialized skills. Three, immediate relatives and special immigrants were not subject to numerical restrictions. Some of the special immigrants included ministers, former employees of the U.S. government, foreign medical graduates, among others. Four, for the first time, immigration from the Western Hemisphere was limited. Although, when seen through the lens of 2023's political attitudes, the act seems almost surrealistically progressive and humane, that is, in many ways, an accidental and unintended consequence. Yes, under the pressure of 60s politics, America wanted to get rid of the nationality quota system, but it still wanted to keep America looking pretty much like it already looked, essentially white and, if not of Northern European, of essentially European ancestry. Cleveland, Ohio Democratic U.S. Representative Michael Fian, a descendant of Irish immigrants, unwittingly proved the truth of the grandchildren of earlier immigrants pulling up the ladder to prevent newer immigrants from entering when he insisted that family unification should take priority over employability on the premise that such a policy would preserve the country's existing ethnic profile. The idea was, if immigrants were sponsored by families already here, then the proportion of each group in society would remain unchanged. Republican U.S. Senator Hiram Fong from Hawaii agreed, arguing that Asians represented six-tenths of a percent of U.S. population and will never reach one percent, and as a result, the cultural pattern of the U.S. would not change. Fong and Fian were both wrong. Their plan resulted in chain migration of recent immigrants so that by the end of the 1970s, non-European immigration doubled the number of European. Throughout the last 30 years of the 20th century, as a result of a third tidal wave of immigration, the percentage of foreign-born persons residing in the United States almost tripled from 5% in 1970 
to 14% in 2016, only 1% less than the 15% in 1910 that so agitated, that so agitated Prescott Hall and Henry Cabot Lodge. The composition of immigrants also changed, since, by the late 20th century, most older Americans descended from earlier immigrant groups did not know or have connections with family living in the old country. They had no one to sponsor. But newer immigrants from the Middle East, Asia, South Asian Indians, and Latin American families did. The mix of immigrants switched from European to a more global, a more Asian, a more non-white world. In 1965, Senator Fong said Asians were less than 1% of the American population. In 2020, Asian Americans represented approximately 7% of the population and were and remain America's fastest-growing racial or ethnic minority. The special skills and medical education provisions led to a large influx of South Asian, Indian, and Middle Eastern doctors. For example, for a while I lived on the southern tier of New York State. If it were not for the large number of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and other recent immigrant doctors, the health and welfare of the people living in that region would be endangered. The Immigration Act of 1965 transformed America, giving rise to much of today's anti-immigrant fervor infecting politics and fueling culture war issues. I happen to believe that the transformation enriched American culture, just as every previous wave of immigration made America a richer, more varied, and more dynamic culture. In fact, thinking about immigration law and who should be admitted and who should be denied, I agree with a wisecrack Kelvin Trillin once made in The New Yorker. He said immigration quotas should be based on national cuisine. He said he'd admit everyone but the British. I agree. We should let everyone in, although we need to seriously sort out just how many we can absorb. Someone recently said, we need a high wall but one with a big gate. Oh, by the way, I think I'd let the British in. I love roast beef and particularly enjoy bangers and mash. You can hold the kidney pie. But not everyone agrees with me. For, just as in every previous wave of immigration, there are those who bitterly oppose the new Americans. I call them 21st century know-nothings. They fear the end of white Christian America. They want to build walls and bunkers with very little doors keeping out people who don't look like them. They are the 21st century white supremacists spewing unchristian diatribes against the newcomers while still others promote building walls, both literal and legal. It's an old story. It's an American story. But, despite everything, they're still coming to America because, as battered as our ideals have been these last years, the glittering notions of liberty, freedom, equality, and opportunity still function as beacons to the world. In addition to those docs I mentioned a moment ago, who's still coming to America? Well, athletes like Patrick Ewing and Martina Navratilova. Who are Patrick Ewing and Martina Navratilova? Well, I suspect that's a self-evident question to anyone listening to the American Tapestry Project. Ewing, of course, is a retired Hall of Fame basketball player and coach, best known for his tenure in the NBA, especially with the New York Knicks. Patrick Ewing was born in Kingston, Jamaica. He moved to the United States at the age of 12 and grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
Ewing played college basketball at Georgetown University under coach John Thompson from 1981 to 1985. He was one of the most dominant players of his era and led the Hoyas to the NCAA championship in 1984. Playing for the New York Knicks in the 1990s, he became one of their all-time greats. Ewing was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2008. He is often considered one of the greatest centers in NBA history. Ewing is remembered for his on-court dominance, for his determination, work ethic, and leadership. Like thousands of immigrants before him, Ewing succeeded because of his work ethic, his perseverance, and his dedication. Martina Navratilova is widely regarded as one of the greatest female tennis players of all time, probably arguably one of the top two or three. Born in Prague, Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, in 1956, Navratilova defected to the United States in 1975 at the age of 18. She became a U.S. citizen in 1981. Her tennis career has few parallels. She won 18 Grand Slam singles titles, 31 Grand Slam doubles titles. In 1981, Navratilova courageously came out as gay, making her one of the first prominent athletes to do so. Over the years, she's been a staunch advocate for LBGTQ plus rights. She's been a vocal on many issues, from equal rights to addressing homophobia in sports. Of late, however, she has faced criticism and backlash for some of her positions regarding transgender athletes. She does not think, for example, that transgender athletes should be permitted to compete against cisgender women. Involved in various endeavors, she's been active in numerous charitable activities. Like all the sons and daughters and grandchildren of immigrants we've met, she faced barriers, met them head-on, and succeeded because of her resilience, talent, and work ethic. On the boats and on the planes They come into America Never looking back again They come into America Ewing and Navratilova are familiar names even to non-sports fans, but who were some other post-1965 immigrants who, as Neil Diamond sings, are still coming to America? Well... From Cuba, there's Daniel Levia. Born in Cuba in 1991, Levia immigrated to the United States with his mother and sister as a young child. Training with his stepfather, Yen Alvarez, Levia quickly ascended the ladder of American gymnastics, competing in the 2012 and 2016 Olympics, where he won two silver medals. War brings America jewels, refugees seeking freedom and opportunity, if we only have the wit to recognize it, as in these three stories. Born in 1989 in Sudan, Charles Jock and his family immigrated after the Second Sudanese War. They spent time in an Ethiopian refugee camp, but about the time Charles was eight years old, they emigrated to San Diego. Growing up in California, Jock was an outstanding middle-distance runner, showcasing his talent in the 800 meters. He ran for the University of California, Irvine, winning the NCAA Men's Outdoor Championships in the 800 in 2012. He qualified for the U.S. Olympic team and competed in Brazil in 2016. Nick Del Papalo's story is one of redemption and perseverance. Born in Montenegro in 1989, 
Del Popolo was adopted as an infant by an American family and raised in America. He developed talent as a child practicing judo from a young age. He was so good, he qualified for the 2012 London Olympics and finished seventh. Suspended for testing positive for cannabis, he accepted responsibility for his actions. After serving his suspension, he made a comeback and qualified for the 2016 Rio Olympics again, finishing seventh. And Kalaja Shahai's story is another positive contribution to America from someone fleeing turmoil and terror of the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. Born in 1969 in Albania, she was a champion pistol shot in her native Albania, which she represented in two different Olympic competitions, Barcelona in 1992 and Atlanta in 1996. In 1996, after the Atlanta Olympics, she made a life-changing decision. She chose not to return to Albania, seeking a better life in the United States. This decision meant leaving her family and starting over in a foreign country. After a time in Detroit, she settled in Naples, Florida, where she and her husband opened a small restaurant featuring Eastern European cuisine. She also resumed her shooting career. After nearly two decades away from competition, and after becoming an American citizen, she qualified for the 2016 Rio Olympics. Although she did not win a medal, just competing after an almost 20-year absence is a testament to her fortitude and persistence. What's the old cliché? Quitters never win and winners never quit? And Kalaja Shahai is living testimony to that. Oh, by the way, regarding that restaurant in Naples, Florida, she and her husband own Mulligan's Bar and Grill. You can check for their fall dates on their Facebook page. So, the story continues. People seeking hope, opportunity, and freedom are still coming to America. Sometimes they still meet hostility, resentment, and rejection. It's an old story. But they persist, finding a new life, making a better place for all. Just like the descendants of the indigenous people, just like the descendants of African Americans, just like women seeking their rights, generations of immigrants, from the Irish and Germans in the mid-19th century to millions of Southern and Eastern Europeans in the early 20th century, to South Asians, Latinos, and yet again Eastern Europeans in the late 20th and early 21st century, people are still coming to America. It is one of the essential threads in the tapestry of American stories, immigrants in the quest for inclusion. Just like John Thorne, Major League Baseball's official historian, John has written often about how baseball gave him entree into American society. Thorne was born in a refugee camp in Stuttgart, Germany in 1947. His father, Richard, a Holocaust survivor, worked there as a translator. In 1949, Thorne's family came to America. They settled in New York City's Queensboro. Baseball cards. Baseball cards were this young immigrant child's entree into American society. Collecting baseball cards was a kid's thing in the early 1950s. Kids flipped them, traded them, put them in their bicycle wheels to make a clicking sound imitating, at least in a young boy's imagination, imitating a motorcycle. Thorne says he learned how to read, deciphering the information on the back of the cards. Thorne was first attracted by the colorful photos, but it was trading cards with neighborhood kids that made him one of the gang. 
Thorne's story typifies that of generations of Americans, from the Irish who dominated 19th century professional baseball to Italian Americans in the mid 20th century to the 21st century Japanese, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, and Venezuelans. It's the essential American story. The story of how people first excluded from the rights and benefits of America's glittering founding ideals fought for inclusion by appealing to those very ideals, while those who would exclude them deny those ideals. Speaking of people coming to America, coming to America seeking the blessings of those ideals, earlier in the program I mentioned how Jewish artists practically invented the American songbook on Tin Pan Alley in the early 20th century. The most inventive of those brilliant artists was Israel Balin, a young street singer who ascended to the pantheon of American pop music as Irving Berlin. Composer of innumerable American standards like God Bless America and White Christmas, not to mention Alexander's Ragtime Band, Easter Parade, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning, Always, Cheek to Cheek, Putting on the Ritz, Blue Skies, I'm in the Army Now, and dozens and dozens and dozens more. Berlin, Berlin practically single-handedly wrote the American Songbook. Next month on the American Tapestry, the story of Irving Berlin. The American Tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Dvorak's String Quartet No. 12 in F Major from the European Archive and Bach's Harpsichord Concerto in D by the Collegium Musicum of Paris are both courtesy of MuseOpen.org, which provides recordings, sheet music, and textbooks to the public for free without copyright restrictions. The Old Time School Bell is from Freesound.org, a huge collaborative audio database released under Creative Commons licenses that allow reuse. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you.